time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Welcome to another episode of Market Meditations, where I, Neil Modi, and my co-host, Chris Heidel, explore the markets, uh, learn from an entrepreneur or an investor, or just learn in general um, from humanity and try and become better people. Um, We also get a chance to talk a little bit about the market in the last week and uh, some trends in venture capital. Today, we are very fortunate to have Ray Muzika join us. Um, His background includes becoming a doctor, starting a video game company, selling it to EA. Um, He knows a ton about organizational psychology and also uh, negotiation, and um, he's a World Series of Poker player. Um, Ray is phenomenal on lots of levels. He is one of the best angel investors I've ever met. Um, he goes deep on everything he looks at, and uh, he's also a pro- what could be a professional wildlife photographer. Um, I always enjoy seeing his photos and his feeds uh, of photos. So I think you're in for a treat. Please buckle in and listen to the very low-key and easy conversation between the three of us. Thanks for joining. Hey, by the way, before you go, if you like this episode or if you like some of the past episodes, please take a moment and rate us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future. We hope you and your family are staying safe. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. I, you two I, have so much, and I learned so much from both of you. Whenever I sit with you, it's hard not to learn. Like I just, though I love interacting with you, I'd be happy not to say a word again to either of you, just because I'd learned so much. So I thought this was like the perfect conversation. Well, thank well, maybe. you. Uh, I, I'm, I would say I ask a lot of dumb questions, and that for speaking of myself, of course, I, um, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. So, yeah, well, I was uh, nervous to meet you. You know, Neil had spoken so glowingly about you. Um, and uh, just looking at, you know, even um, your accomplishments and just thinking about meeting you, but especially what Neil has shared with me about your heart and uh, drive. So I'm very honored to have you on and to have a conversation with you. So Thank thanks you. for yeah, joining likewise. us. Thank yeah. you for allowing me for to sure. join. Yeah. So... By God, I don't know where to start, Ray, but did you <laughs> always have like an excitement or a passion in your life, like gaming, even though you were a medical student? Uh, well, I started video games when I was quite young. That was kind of my introduction to computers and self-taught programmer and stuff. I remember in grade seven, my science teacher, uh, Mr. Nishimura, I believe is his name, he um, said, I, th- I think you'd like to see this. And it was like the school just gotten an Apple II. And... Um, I love science. I love, you know, I love learning. And he brought me in. It's like, okay, take this cassette tape. It was back in the days, pre, pre-disc drive or hard drive or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, pre-five and a quarter. Pre-floppy drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, put a tape in and it's like, it was one of Scott Adams uh, uh, text adventures and uh, took three tries to load it, you know, squeal sounds playing and, you know, multiple minutes to load this cassette tape. It was crazy. And uh, I was hooked, you know, so I, I'm like, how do I create that? How do I make that? So I, you know, Dug out a book on a uh, basic, and then I don't know C and assembly and stuff, and just kind of just kind of having fun with that. Played a lot of video games along the way, and uh, never really thought about going into that as a career. Uh, I don't know why, but 
but uh, for me, it was it was just it made a decision at one point. I'm going to be a doctor, and so that's that's all I really focused on. And and I became a doctor, practiced, uh, did ER, rural ER for a couple of years full time. And then uh, my, my co-founder and I, uh, during residency and med school, we had um, done some medical education software. So one was a acid-based physiology simulator that we sold to the University of Alberta, and they gave that out to all the first-year students for about a decade. And another one was a, a gastroenterology patient simulator. It was it was gripping, gripping title, eh? but uh, <laughs> we, we sold that to Jensen Ortho Pharmaceutica, and they gave that out to the family docs across Canada that year, I think. And we liked programming, like business, we like software. Um, but we, we one day we had lunch, and we're like, you know, this. We called it the uh, the lunch circuit because we would go for meetings or, or do phone calls and then give up and go buy ourselves lunch. Uh, but, uh, you know, we were like, there doesn't seem to be a lot of paying customers in this market. You know, we didn't have any business understanding. But why don't we make video games? Because, you know, we played every video game between us probably growing up, you know, as kids and, you know, all the different platforms. And how hard could it be, right? And, uh, of course, we didn't had no idea how hard it would be, but that's probably for the best. And uh, then, <laughs> yeah, for eight years, and we kind of, I overlapped my locum tenens just kind of doing that less and less, um, you know, once every few weeks, once every month, once every two months, three months, until I finally retired from medicine in, in early 2000s. And uh, by then I was doing an MBA, exec MBA, and Bioware was growing really rapidly. And uh, yeah, I was at Bioware for, Bioware for a couple, tw- or 20 years or so, a couple decades. And uh you know, kind of an overnight success over 20 years, basically. So <laughs> that's how it works in the, uh, in the real world. Yes. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky yeah. to work with some really smart, passionate people and I had great teams at every stage and got very lucky and kept at it and persistent and, and, uh, had some good, good games and good, good outcomes. Well, and, and Ray or Chris, you'll, you'll appreciate this. The only video game that Eric Tan owned and played for years was one of race. Yeah, I think wow. you mentioned that when I when when we we spoke. And, <laughs> yeah. That's a ringing endorsement. I'm going to yeah. tell you. I got him through his uh, post grad work. Post- <laughs> Just getting I, a chance to. I think it was Baldur's Gate, wasn't it? Was I it? think so, but I don't. I, or it could have been one of the Mass Effect series. I I can't remember now, but uh, yeah, it, that, that's really cool. And I'll, I've run into a lot of folks that you know that uh, that don't know what I did uh, did, and uh, you know they find out and they're like. Wait, did you guys develop this game? You know, depending on depending how old they are, it depends on which era that it would be from. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, a lot of great memories and a lot of great uh, great history. Now I'm a fan. I get since I retired in 2012 from video games, I get to play all the competitor games and all Bioware's games and just play them for fun again. So which is uh, which is uh-huh. a great great pleasure. It's one of my hobbies now. Do you have a favorite video game? Uh, probably varies by decade you know like i probably used to be able to rattle off like a, a dozen or so from the the 80s the 90s the the 2000s Wait. the 2010s and so is on. it platform specific ray like if you said i had my favorite arcade game is Pac-Man, um yeah there would be one for every there'd be multiple <laughs> ones for every platform for sure um <laughs> and you know nowadays i play all the platforms as well pc and uh PlayStation and Xbox and Switch and mobile and iPad and you name it. Do you, Do you play think- Fortnite? Sorry, Chris. I've just <laughs> got. I have ahead. played. Yeah. I have played uh, some of the mob- um, some of the uh, those kinds of games, and uh, uh, I have played Fortnite, but I don't play it actively. No, I, I generally prefer to play single player story driven experiences. Um, sometimes I play some shooters and action games, um, 
it's very unusual that I'll play a lot of um, multiplayer focus games just because the time commitment is so intense mm -hmm. and they're very competitive. I, I used to uh, back when I was in the industry. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think there's a tremendous leg up that the games uh, gaming has um, as we move into this kind of virtual world, this idea of the metaverse and what the future of work even looks like. I agree. I uh, they were I... pioneers in a lot of aspects, like uh, yeah. in um, their marketing approach, in their approach to analytics, um, in the introduction in a light fashion, you know, machine learning and AI. Although mo most games tend to be more script driven um, mm -hmm. just because the overhead requirements. So that's changing now that the, the new CPUs and GPUs have so much power. Um, but, uh, and, and a lot of, you know, user interface and design have a, a big influence on uh, a lot of other aspects of software driven development. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, you and know, you start gamification and, and engagement and, uh, you know, those kinds of metrics are very relevant to software too. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, Neil. No, that's okay. Yeah. Take, take a step back, right? Like you're starting a video game company while you're a med student or shortly thereafterwards. Um, and are you married at that point? I got married in 2002. So no, no. Greg was married in during med school, I think. And uh, what did his wife say? Him. You're starting a video game company? Why are we sending you to med school? Right? Like there must have been some questions about that. What did my wife say? Or what did, uh, what did his, Greg's wife say? Greg's I guess. Wife? Yeah, Greg was my <laughs> co-founder. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I know my parents and his parents uh, and some of our friends thought it was more of a phase, you know, we we're going through and they didn't really, I remember taking my parents on tours through the office and be like, do all these people work here? Do, I, do, they, do you pay them? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, and I think it was more seeing awards and, uh, you know, kind of public recognition and news stories that kind of brought it more, made it more real for them. But um, I never had an intention to go back to med medicine full time. For me, it was almost literally like my hobby became my career and my career became my hobby because um, I looked at medicine that way when I was doing is, you know, for fun, you know, like doing a drive out on a weekend after working all week and weekend at, at Bioware, <laughs> I would go do a emergency shift somewhere just for extra fun, you know, and stay up all night and then drive back and start working again at Bioware. Um, yeah. And I guess it was impacted too in the first five years because we didn't take a salary. So from Bioware, so we were kind of living on maxed out. We had no investors because there weren't any tech investors in Alberta really at, uh, at that time, very few. <laughs> Uh, so we were entirely retained earnings driven and self-funded, you know, as ourselves, as our only angels, basically until our first external funding round was a private equity round about 15 years in. Wow. And then we got acquired a couple of years later by mm -hmm. EA. It happened quickly, huh? Uh, quicker <clears> than we thought. Yeah. We, we took the private equity funding in 2005. We didn't anticipate, uh, that, um, we, we weren't seeking a specific outcome like an exit, you know, though certainly we got an offer we couldn't refuse and it was great. You know, it advanced a lot of the, the goals, not just financial, but aspirational goals about learning and becoming a publisher and self-funding IP. Um, but I think, you know, our primary thought was we would fund new locations and new intellectual properties and new business models and, um, and become a publisher of our own products. And, uh, and that was what the, the, the raise was around and uh, then go public at some point, you know, in mm -hmm. the next five to seven years. So mm -hmm. the fact we had an offer that was met a lot of those ambitions was a uh, 3x multiple on our valuation a couple of years earlier um, made everybody, you know, very happy financially. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah it was everybody was firmly in, firmly in support of it. 
Yeah. So there was harmony in the group. Yeah, I think so. It was a great time of learning for me. Uh, I learned a lot from the private equity uh, venture, the, the the general partners there. And it was a great yeah. group of six folks and some interesting characters amongst them. And uh, and uh, but it was a great time of learning and growth for the company. And uh, what I did learn at EA was uh, I, I really enjoyed the first few years and. It was a great time to learn what it takes for a company to build the systems and processes and structures to go public. Uh, I learned I personally don't really like being an operator in a public company. Uh, mm -hmm. I like the long-term, the longer-term view of uh, private enterprise. Uh, you know, the seed stage and and, and, mm -hmm. and beyond, but kind of before they go public. But I, I'm really glad we did it because it brought liquidity to our our shareholders, which was all of our employees. Every one of them had shares in, in Bioware and and uh, gave them a liquidity event, gave them some opportunities for career growth and advancement within a larger, stable company. And uh... Interesting. Ray, where, where does poker come into all of this? Well, poker's <laughs> a hobby. Uh, my parents, uh, my grandparents, rather, um, on my mom's side, taught me how to play poker, I think, when I was six. And uh, they took all my money, and I've never looked back since. It was been a great hobby, you know. So uh, <laughs> you had to get revenge. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it was like I just—it it really fascinated me, sort of a microcosm of, of life. And ultimately, now I understand it's sort of a, a, a microcosm of business. Although it's very win-lose, whereas mm -hmm. business, you know, a successful business people, I think, tend to be more win-win focused, mm -hmm. uh, at least the longer-term success ones. Um, but uh, but game theory is fascinating to me, and uh, reading people. I've taken courses on tells, and uh, um, the, actually the courses I've taken uh, are technically around interrogation techniques. Um, <laughs> I asked him to use them on me, like in the first ten minutes of meeting him, Chris. By yeah, the way. but the, what did but you learn, they're, Ray? They're yeah, uh, very interesting. I mean, they, 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 there are aspects of micro tells. You know, you learn how to to try and hone your intuition around watching videos about, you know, quick eye glances or, or, you know, kind of movements or detecting pulse rates or breathing changing or the feet, you know, the seeing where your feet are placed, things like that. And I've read a lot of books on that too. Uh, and then there's the interrogation aspect is more of a, a formal sequence of questions to try and heighten stress and increase the likelihood that people will express some of these tells in their answers and ultimately confess. Um, so the, yeah, it was a course I've taken a few times now through YPO that they offer. It's just kind of interesting to go through it. Wait, so uh, like, is this, are these the kind of interrogation techniques that that Chris Voss talks about in his? The, you know, I, I've watched the masterclass and I read his book. Yeah, uh, and negotiate as though your life depends on it. It's a great, great book. Uh, um, yeah, I think there's elements that are overlap uh, in there. Um, these the course, this specific course, which I took. You know, just because I thought it'd be interesting on the face of it, and also might be relevant to poker, learning some about micro expressions, and and also in business as well when you negotiate and getting insights you can glean are always helpful. Um, you know, I think you must be very good at it because I've sat around with you a lot and seen you interact with a lot of founders, and it was never obvious to me um, that you were using any of these abilities of yours, if you will. Yeah, I don't. Um, necessarily consciously try to do that but i mean I th it's more of a an augmentation of like when you ask a question if you can pick up on uh, a soft signal that might build on other things that you've noticed through a pattern you know and for me the say do ratio over time is probably the most important thing um seeing what people say they're going to do and then see how they deliver 
um, against those goals, what the stated goals, you know, how do they, how do they actually achieve them? CDL, the creative destruction lab that Neil and I participate in, uh, I'm in six streams. I think I renew for next year, wow. uh, which is kind of nuts, but you know, I really love it. So it's, uh, it's fun. Um, but I, I, but it's a great opportunity to see entrepreneurs and help entrepreneurs over a long period of time. Like nine months is generally the cycle, I think. And you get to see them every eight weeks and, Put up your hand to help some of them and, and see how they progress from session to session. And Ray, your feeling about um, the preference for the longer range vision you're able to uh, to embrace with a private company or a venture stage company, does that mean that your preference is to invest only there? Or you still look to public markets? Uh, well, we do have uh, passive investments with our bankers in U.S. and Canada, but the the area I spend my time on day to day as an active angel investor, impact investor, is in the pre-seed to seed stage uh, teams. You know that's where I typically start make my first investment. Sometimes I do follow-ons in later stages too. Uh, I've invested in over sixty startups across about twenty cities so far, and uh, done follow-ons in a third to half of them probably, and um, always looking at, at new ones as well. Um, and is it, it's only Canada and the U.S., right? So far, yeah. Just Canada, U.S., yeah. Um, considering maybe some European investments, um, I, I like to invest in social entrepreneurs. So often they will have a developing world focus or um, a deployment that, you know, I bring some some benefits to people, planet, uh, you know, to help the world in some aspect. But uh, and, I've, and I look at a lot of health med tech and biomed tech as well. That's probably 80% plus of what I look at. But I also look at some other applications within the social enterprise world. But, but yeah, it, to answer your question, Chris, uh, where I spend my time day to day is um, on on my angel investments, which, you know, kind of like I try and be an active and supportive advisor in, in un, informal and unpaid in most cases, but try and be supportive to my portfolio teams. Mm hmm. Even if that means while he's mentoring, he's going through a, a contract like he did yesterday on a deal where we're both uh, advising the company we're both I advising. Guess it's, yeah. Oh yeah, you can throw I, anything at me, and I'll you know, like I said, I'll ask a lot of dumb questions, and I don't know necessarily much about anything, but I can, I'm happy to give high level advice and feedback to entrepreneurs, and uh, you know, pattern match if I can. And you know, I'm a generalist. Uh, I like. Mm -hmm helping with organizational behavior and structures and systems and negotiations and helping teams raise their next financing round and prepare for it, uh, make introductions within my network, uh, helping them with uh, more specific things if it's a software team uh, or, in, you know, I got a little bit more knowledge down about, around regulatory reimbursement and other aspects of med tech and biomed tech. Yeah, that was a, it's an interesting thread that you seem to have carried for a lot of your life. You were um, in medicine, emergency room doctor, right? Yeah, I did ER? family yeah. med and ER, mostly ER shifts in Northern uh -huh. Alberta. So I had, uh, I did locum tenens, which means temporary, temporary replacement in Latin. And I would just go and fill in and I had privileges at about 20 hospitals, I think. Mm -hmm. um, until a few years ago, I, I actually had a license until 2019, I think. Uh, I just kept renewing it as sort of retired. But uh, finally, I just said, what, what am I paying the fees for? And they want me to do more CME. And I'm just, I'm never going to go back to practice. So it was more of a habit. I just kept, I think because I, I had an auto pay, the, the license would continue to get paid every year. And I was like, damn it, I forgot to cancel it again. But, um, but yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, it, it was rural locum tenants mostly. Yeah, so it was yeah. very dynamic. You never knew what you're going to see. You usually yeah. were the only dock within a hundred mile radius in most of these places for catchment area of like ten thousand people. So 
could be really quiet or it could be really hairy, you know, and you have like 20 people in, in beds and another 20 people waiting to see you some, some weekends. So it was, mm-hmm. uh, you had to learn to work with a team, you know, of paramedicals and nurses and, um, radiology techs and lab techs and kind of figure out, you know, when you're going to evac a patient out, when were they stable enough to stay? Um, you know, how do you fit in time for some minor things like, you know, suturing was one of the things I really loved to do, but you always had to see more serious cases before you could go back and sit down, relax and freeze the patient up and get a nice closure. And they were like, have you started yet? Yeah, it's finished. You know, it's like, check it out. It's like beautiful now. All right. See you later. Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it was very quite, quite varied. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I think that uh, I've noticed a thread where so many more of at least physicians who are entrepreneurial seem to share that uh, passion and have been ER docs more than I think they're overrepresented. Maybe it's the it might be a reflection of yeah, you have to respond quickly, make decisions based on imperfect information. You learn how to manage a team, and if you're going to be effective, you have to be able to communicate clearly with the patients in a respectful way that they understand walk away and hopefully comply and you have to be able to give orders in a way that makes people feel like they're part of a team and yet really clear that uh, they have to do these things because these are the things that require to advance but be willing to change you know um, an article I re- reference uh, from HBR it's called the season decision season executives decision-making style I often refer entrepreneurs to that as they advance in their careers and it kind of talks about that need for a different behaviors and, and intuitions and, and thinking, um, you know, as, as, as managers grow within a larger organization. And I remember thinking back on how I evolved as a, as a, a leader, as, a, as an ER doc, and it was very different than when I was a med student, for sure. And, and I, some of those behaviors are translatable to, to entrepreneurship as well. So, it, you know, it, it's kind of interesting too, Chris, I must have shared that study I read uh, a few years back with ER docs being the second most um, innovative uh, specialty in in the country by patent filings. Wow. Um, there's only been one study on this. I tried to look for more of them, um, but I think plastic surgeons were a little higher. Yeah. Well, but, I was just um, speaking anecdotally, and I'm glad that it's well, supported. If you work in rurally, you have to be able to improvise. Um, you learn that pretty early that, you know, sometimes you just have to figure out how do you make a tube and a needle to, to connect to something and to, in order to stick into a patient to be able to do something. Uh, and sometimes you have to do it quickly. So I don't know. You're always thinking in that mindset, you know, like what have I got around me that I can use to solve this problem? You know, spurting blood, I need a clamp. What can I use like right now, you know, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Sorry. And it was unique IP. I think cardiologists were higher, but th- theirs was very dependent. <laughs> IP. Thanks for when he speaks of tube, lots of stents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's neat. That's uh, certainly uh, medicine is ripe for innovation and uh, there's lots of opportunities to uh, improve healthcare outcomes. It's interesting. You know, I try and describe the opportunity to look at med tech today. Um, and, you know, we've got this convergence of all these technologies coming together and there's still a major gap in funding in this space. Um, even though there's I mean, lots of the stuff you and I have looked at is very low regulatory approval. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious how you talk about it to some of your friends who don't invest in the space who are just kind of curious to learn why why these spaces, you know, wh- why obviously you've got this medical background, but beyond that, what what about the spaces um, that's so interesting to medical you? Medical friends? 
doctor friends. I assume yeah. have some doctors. They're, they're generally either active investors themselves or completely incurious about the topic is what I've run Got into, <laughs> um, which is interesting because, yeah. I There's don't no get, in between. No, no, not much. No. Um, you know, they're very focused on their own work. They're very, they're subject matter experts and discipline experts and they work hard at it. And yeah, generally they're not that interested in business or they are. And then they're active entrepreneurs or investors themselves, you know, so there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. What about your business friends who are, don't have the medical background who are, you know, a lot of them probably look at tech deals. I'll say, how do you explain the desire or the, the space to them? Generally, they're, they're of two camps too. Either they follow on a lead who has more subject matter experience because they like the size of the market and the opportunity, or again, they just avoid it entirely because of perception and challenges of regulatory reimbursement <laughs> right. and complexity and time to market and ROI. Um, you know, the net present value of being longer in some cases because of some of the med tech, which is not untrue sometimes. Health tech, it's not, it isn't the case. There's could be very fast time to market there. Um, med tech, biomed tech, pharma in that order kind of get increasingly, you know, um, bipolar, uh, or sorry, um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to find? Uh, unequal, you know, distributions that are, um, um, coin side, you know, like, uh, un, un, either complete failure or complete success, especially with pharma. Um, Right. It's, it's, you've got to have quite the stomach to be a, I'm, I'm impressed with the pharma and brethren of ours uh, who are investors. Yeah, there's not many of place there. I've only, I think I've only invested in two and I'm looking at a couple more, but uh, one was just the entrepreneur really impressed and, and some other folks that are smarter than me said they thought this was a really good opportunity. So, you know, I followed their lead. And in, in another case, I think it's a platform play. Right. Interesting. Um, what do you look for? I mean, you're, you're you're looking at a lot of different things across companies. Obviously, you look for that impact, but can you share a little bit more about the kind of companies you're ideally looking for? Well, there's a lot of factors. Uh, one is the size of the market, the nature of the disruption or the innovation, and how likely are they to disrupt something that's a big space already? How likely are they to innovate a new category? Uh, how hard is it to, to make that happen? How many competitors? Is it a red ocean or blue ocean? Those kinds of things. The nature of the market, and the and the innovation. Then the, the other big category is the team and the entrepreneur specifically. You know, what's the founder market fit? Um, what drives them? Where do they see success being like? Uh, you know, um, just getting hearing their story and understanding where they're coming from and where they want to go. And you know, those are the two biggest things I look at. And then I dive into whole bunch of other categories, you know, what's the business model, what much research they've done, customer discovery, uh, have they defined their ideal customer profile yet, and what's their process to move forward to figure out how to get to market, do they have any traction, revenue to date, any proof points of life, you know, LOIs, customers, um, what's their pricing model, how do they validate that, what are the top risks to the business, how are they mitigating those now and then in the future, how much IP do they have, this is, an, I know, an area that you're very passionate about. Um, which is, you know, key, key area for, for science is how do, how do you protect it from competitors? Um, what's their roadmap going forward? Key milestones, regulatory plans, um, place and distribution. How do they get to market? Do you have any partnerships? Uh, what's their manufacturing development plan? What are the cost of goods and how do they manufacture? Any social targets impact, you know, quantifying that more? 
And uh, you know, are there other investors already in the round? Can I talk to them? Understand why they're investing? Uh, maybe you know, a whole bunch of other things that you spend more time on. But those are kind of the starting points. And then you, once you figure out where you want to, where you've identified some potential risks, then you can spend more time on those in future diligence. That was way more succinct than I could have named any of those things, even though I do all of those things too. <laughs> That's like basically my first hour of call. And most of my, when I meet an entrepreneur, I try and make it useful for them, whether I invest or not. But I run through all those questions and then, you know, ask a bunch of questions, give them feedback on, on different things by reviewing the pitch deck in advance. And, and then if it merits a, a follow on, then we continue it from there. I, we can. I think we can label this episode, Chris, as like you know, a guide to receiving your first angel check as a medtech or biomedtech company. Yeah, I think that's yeah, a or great more broad list. social enterprise tech too, because I've invested in a few of those as well. What's Which, social enterprise tech? Help me out. I have no uh, idea. So it could be environment, about. education, um, agriculture, ag tech, potentially clean food, clean water, uh, entrepreneurial acceleration, um, microfinancing for. The developing world for entrepreneurs or for or for families or for communities things like could be you know there's a whole broad range of of categories and it kind of go on and on but you know people planet profit sort of yes it's a for-profit investment but it's also got benefits to hum humanity or the environment or you know um, some of those some of those categories shouldn't all business make our lives better ray well i i believe so i believe social purpose organizations um in fact we're just discussing this uh, at the, the CDL Vision Council, which I'm a member of. Um, well, you know the, the the book Reimagining Capital um, mm -hmm. for a World on Fire is great reference in talking about social purpose organizations and ESG goals mm -hmm. and environment social goals um, um, and, and um, you know social enterprise is an example of that social purpose organizations is another way to frame that. Mm -hmm. um, so I believe so. I think that organizations that are well aligned with their stakeholders, including employees and customers and shareholders in their, in their wider community, uh, are more likely to be successful long term because they're going to have more brand value and equity and they'll have fewer downstream risks and, and repercussions from that uh, not being aligned. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Neil and I have been chatting about a uh, article that got a lot of traction, which was about DoorDash and pizza arbitrage. <laughs> the, uh, questions surrounding that, even in the venture world, how there's so much money chasing certain deals. Yeah. That, um, the strategy for many companies is just to buy their revenue growth. Right. And they pay a top dollar just to buy revenue, even though it's not durable, nor sustainable, nor real. Yeah. And, um, uh, the idea is they never have to be really profitable. Well, it works well. There's capital market uh, stability, but in, in as I anticipate, and in, you know, a lot of VCs I'm hearing as well are saying to their portfolio companies, the the music's going to stop at some point, and there will be a, a run on chairs, and uh, hmm. that's probably going to happen in the next two years. Yeah, <laughs> we've been saying that for two years, though, right? Chris? <laughs> well, uh, What's you know, the difference between being early and wrong, Neil? Is <laughs> you've got I, mean, I think, I think a thirty percent drop in GDP uh, in a quarter, yeah. with no likely path, no light out of the tunnel yet. Um, no vaccine being available probably for COVID until twenty twenty one at earliest, if not later, at scale, um, and ongoing 
capital market disruption probably resulting and labor market disruptions. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of volatility and stability and a lot of opportunities for teams that can deliver solutions in this new reality, this new virtual world. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of the weaknesses and even the tolerances we had for what was happening with capital are going to be uh, forever undone and changed. I mean, yeah. Although you still see Uber buying um, Postmates <laughs> and you see some of these, uh, the the marriage of two massively money-losing enterprises doesn't create a money <laughs> it's not. It's not a two negative sequels. It doesn't work in, in business. Yeah. I think I read a story on Uber that they're losing less money than the they had projected, like one point eight billion in the last quarter, revenue, <laughs> two or three billion. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's positive progress, but there's still not any path forward to a profit that I can understand. But right. Um, Right. Yeah, and I think you know there there might be one of those companies that is buying their revenue stream unprofitably. They're counting probably on automated vehicles being the, the the godsend. Will that come fast enough to save them? I don't know. Yeah, there's such big questions. No one really knows. Yeah, that makes it such a speculative thing. There will be yeah. automated vehicles, and it will benefit some company. It will it be the first to market? I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. So do you have an idea of when that last mile problem can be solved, Ray? You have from all of your studies and insights? Uh, for delivery or for pickup or like robotic uh, yeah, uh, vehicles for, and things? Like for that. vehicles, yeah. Um, well, I think COVID has accelerated a lot of these things from you know being 10 to 20 years out down to three months, mm -hmm. you know, to, to being like, you know, <laughs> so, so I think, I think, Frankly, we're better positioned. To, there's going to be more teams that are have active customers, paying customers that'll be paying for those solutions now than ever before, um, yeah. which is convenient for investors who have been investing in technologies like that, uh, more virtual delivery, more you know um, improvement that can be delivered remotely. Um, telehealth is an area. You know, the, these kinds of solutions, collaborative care portals. Uh, um, health telehealth solutions, you know, those are the kinds of categories that are going to do really well in this environment. I think the behaviors you'll see from consumers are going to be permanent. That's my, that's my belief because mm -hmm. I think if they have to do something different for three years in a row or some reasonable portion of that, it's going to be difficult to go back. In fact, a lot of the things that are the rough edges, why people don't do these things the rest of the time, we'll work, we'll work them out during that time and we'll figure out you don't need to go back to an office. You can do offices for these specific activities and the rest of the stuff can be done virtually in many cases and the same will be true for remote delivery same for delivery of services at scale and for a lot of other things yeah you think it actually went from 20 years down to months like less than a year in so some cases, some, that much. sometimes we might have been five years away from seeing meaningful market adoption sometimes it might be 10 years or more but yeah i think it's literally put you know, put it right in front of everybody, like right now. And so, so, Chris, does that make you more bullish on Amazon since they're working on a fleet of drones to deliver everything? Um, <laughs> I, I'll never count out Amazon. Um, but, you know, there's always the question of price. 
yet. Um, the the but the last mile delivery, I, I just keep thinking about it because that's the the real hurdle. I think we've got the long distance thing, yeah, uh, very close to figured out. Um, yeah, no, I I agree. And whether it's drones or whether it's like automated vehicles or it's a blend of, you know, the um, the uh, the gig economy kind of like sort of filling in that, you know, as it is now, frankly, in many cases. Like I know in Amazon deliveries in the U.S., the last mile is done by um, a couple gray hair folks getting in and out of cars as they drive mm -hmm. down the street. I've seen that more and more. Uh, they mm -hmm. still work with some of the major delivery companies as well, but and UPS, uh, UPS, uh, postal service, and UPS as well. But they also gone to private contractors too, and I've seen that in Canada too. Yeah. One of the things that we've kind of supposed is that we believe the United States is becoming is headed towards looking a little more like a, a third world country. Um, we think, you know, I think both of us, Chris and I, agree that well, the income inequality the, is horrendous, yeah, and unsustainable, and the the medical system and its ability to bankrupt people uh, for just one illness is an education systems, um, yeah failing in many regions too yeah so there's you know the amazing gdp but it's not going to the people it's going to a very small percentage of people and i don't well, think that's sustainable you know do you think canada's headed the same way certainly not oh, at ahead. the same rate it's got a socialized medical system and and social support for education and many more supportal social supports so there's a greater distribution of wealth and there's still um uh, an opportunity to move up uh from modest starting point to become an entrepreneur that's still very feasible like i didn't come from money my parents were teachers both of them and you know middle class you know comfortably middle class but um i i didn't get in, any financial support from them for my business um so you know it's still possible to create a, a, a um a, a great exit and an outcome and create you know advance um your career in canada i, I think it's more challenging in the u.s to do that yeah, I think uh, Neil, to your point, and and Ray to concur that, you know, in the U.S. we've really substituted finance for industry as the locomotive for GDP growth, and it is really true. You can drive that, but um, <laughs> it's not necessarily in and of itself either enduring or real. If you're just getting multiple expansion, or if you're um, misdirecting capital to things that really are, in some cases, creating social ills rather than solutions so yeah and i do think the teams companies organizations that are more aligned with all their stakeholders the the social purpose organizations will be more sustainable long term mm -hmm. is there um a particular area of your investing uh, that you're most excited about right now oh uh, well i spend a lot of time on health and biotech and medtech mm -hmm. so those are all interesting to me you know, really like all, all of my portfolio companies and the opportunities for for both you know specific advancements in different medical categories uh, but also in broader applications benefiting the health system as a whole uh, or you know improving outcomes for for a range of different uh, indications so uh, i'd be hard pressed to pick one that is, yeah. is my favorite because uh, I like all of them and I think they're all doing really, really well. So. <laughs> and we want to be diplomatic. And, uh, and where have uh, Neil, where have you and Ray found common ground? 
Um, I think we're both in ODS, uh, yep. Yep. first investment. We're both in Innovate. Yep. Um, I think those are the only two we're both in, right? Um, I wouldn't know. Optina? Are you an Optina? Uh, I haven't. No, I don't think I am. I looked at that. I think. Um, I remember you looked at it. I don't know if you were in it. No. So we're in a few deals together. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of send Ray all of the stuff I'm looking at because uh, he's the most thorough angel investor I've ever met in terms of just, you obviously heard his, his quick checklist, <laughs> but there isn't a document he doesn't typically look at in the diligence folder and have at least thoughts about, even if he's not sharing or asking about. So it, it's fun to interact with him. Yeah, it, it doesn't take too long. Usually, if once you get down to a diligence review, it's just you spend an hour or two going through it top to bottom, and you know, you book another hour with the team and give them some feedback, and hopefully that helps them, if not in the current round, at least in the next round. And it, it generally problems that you identify in an earlier stage don't get better on their own; they usually become more expensive to fix later. So, <laughs> yeah. All problems, all problems grow higher with more capital, grow larger with more capital. And the other thing, it's an interesting benefit that I've heard consistently from almost every entrepreneur that I worked with and, and invested in or asked them to move to the next stage of prepare a diligence folder if they don't have one, is that it it is kind of a pain in the butt to prepare one to the level that I ask for, but it's not that different from what most VCs will want to see. In fact, it's built on what I've seen from VCs when I've co-invested or I'm on the investment committee for Anovia and the advisory board for Voyager. And I've done co-investments with a bunch of seed stage and, and series A investors. Um, but it, it benefits both the current round in terms of other investors come in and they you send in this, the entrepreneurs send in this link for a diligence folder. And they're like, Holy crap, you got your shit together. Um, so that, that's literally the, the common expression from angels who don't often see that level of thoroughness and preparedness. And, um, Longer term, it, it benefits the next round because you've got materials organized and you don't lose them. And if an employee leaves, you don't have some documents they didn't sign, you know, invention assignment agreements and kind of awkward things like that, uh, requiring you to sign a rep and warranty later, you know, in your M&A process that you don't want to have to do um, or have cap table issues because someone didn't uh, um, agree that, you know, when they left, their, their reverse vesting hadn't, hadn't finished and, you know, and so on, things like that. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, the earlier you can find kind of structural issues or uh, give them feedback on financial gaps, you know, in their financial model. Um, but generally, the, the bet more it helps them, and it helps them externally as well. Hmm. I, you know, if I had to sum up your your life, this is going to sound really good or very terrible, one of the two. Um, after all this time with you, and I, I've been trying to think through the parallels, is like you're the master of observation, right? Because you, you take photos, you play poker, and you've got to observe those things. You're trying to learn how to read people better. When you're talking about companies, you're you're seeing a lot of different things. Oh, that's cool. I've never thought of it that way. I, I still think I'm I'm gonna I'm still learning what I'm gonna do when I grow up, and I'm always trying to. <laughs> totally... You're gonna marry uh, health and gaming. <laughs> well, there actually, that's, there's an interesting overlap there because a lot of health platforms or medtech platforms, if they have some software component, they do actually benefit from some light gamification or some thoughtful uh, wellness platforms. Mental health platforms definitely benefit from this. Um, I've just just committed to a mental health um, entrepreneur today 
um, closing the investment next week. And, you know, they're going to benefit from some feedback on gamification, I think, to increase their engagement and improve retention and reduce churn and uh, increase virality potentially and help community growth. So these are all things that uh, directly correlate. I mean, because humans enjoy being entertained and engaged and ultimately games at the core, that's what they do. We, we built a framework at Bioware around this that I find is very relevant. Um, you kind of squint and, and think about how the features of the, the, the plat whatever platform you're talking about or software or, or med tech, how do they correlate? How can, you, how can you make them more engaging in terms of customization, progression, or in terms of a combat or co a conflict, you know, kind of competitive ladders would be an example of that with other people in the community, if it's relevant. Um, mm -hmm. How can you reveal features over time in sort of a way that kind of feels like you're exploring a map? Uh, that's very, that's fun and engaging for gamers as well as for people using a software app. Uh, how can you make some a level of story uh, in, a, in a an appropriate way? You can you can overdo all these things, but. Uh, um, uh, the book flow talks about this you know you want to you want to keep people in the flow channel so they're not bored and they're not hyper stimulated but comfortably kind of engaged along the along the journey yeah the the, the both book flow by Chiksat Mahai is that yes called? yeah Mikhail I can never pronounce his last name but uh Mikhail yeah. Chiksat Mahai yeah Chiksat Mahai okay cool Mahai. Now I know how to pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> After I grappled with your name too, Ray. That's uh... there's a lot of Ukrainians in Alberta, so it's a little bit familiar. People when when you say Musica, people are like, "Oh, is that Polish or Ukrainian?" And yeah, yeah, the oystermen in New Orleans. There were a lot of them. Yeah, um, yeah. Not, yeah, not many oysters in, in Prairie Country. So right, but I guess working in mines and stuff uh, had some sort of legacy link, maybe to that kind of work. Yeah. Anyway. Ray, where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you're looking at? And I mean, I, I don't know if you actually accept deal flow via website or anything like that. I do. Technically, I have an email like my website has an email link, um, a warm referral or, you know, from either a, a fellow investor or a or portfolio entrepreneur. Those are or CDLs generally the, the main sources of my deal flow now, although I still do look for deal flow and meet entrepreneurs at conferences and things like that, or virtual conferences nowadays. So and it, the one danger is because I'm a one man team. If, um, you know, my wife is a former banker, she helps me a lot as well, but, but really on these angel investment deals, it's just me. Um, so that's the one danger is that my inbox gets full. So if I don't respond to an email, don't look at it as a, um, trying to be rude I've or noticed anything. I'm your friend. <laughs> yeah. It's just you, you ping me again because I, you know, once it gets beyond the fold of the page, 100 emails, and I just literally often never get there again. So uh, that's the one caveat. I, I also, you know, look at Twitter. I looked at LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is just Ray Muzika, um, and LinkedIn is just me as well. And that goes to my contact at thresholdimpact.com email as well. Um, I, I'm hoping you'll join us for the next part. It's okay if you don't have the time. We typically talk a little bit about the market and some observations and in venture capital um i'd be happy to i mean i'm yeah. uh, I, I don't pretend to know much on in these areas but uh happy to hear your insights and oh and so some of them like the the public markets i don't have obviously the insights chris does um as a now i you, you you're gonna you're gonna not cringe at this this term uh chris a veteran of the public markets <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> with um, the beginner's mind, I hope. With the be- yeah, right, right. I, I, I knew that. That's how you think about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I try and learn a little bit from Chris. And one of the things we do in every podcast, we'll turn to this next is, you know, Chris has 120 families that uh, he, uh, who are his clients, and I always ask him. On it seems most weeks, I ask him you know, what is it you want to tell them about the market? What was most interesting to you or not interesting, uninspiring in some cases? Hmm. And, you know, just kind of how did it go? Um, what was notable to you? So Chris uh, and Ray, ask lots of questions in interrupt. Um, there is no dumb questions here. Yeah, it, it, so, as, a, as a filter, one of the thing, areas that does fascinate me, fascinate me about the public markets, which I try and apply back to the early stage investments is the field of value investing. So I've read a mm-hmm. lot of books on that, um, you know, Ranging from Buffett and uh, his his uh, Ben Graham, uh, his era, yeah, Ben Graham, and uh, you know, more recent ones, you know, Anurag Sharma and Guy Spears and others, others, and I've, I've read dozens and dozens of books on value investing over the years. Yeah, Spears at Aquamarine is a very thoughtful investor. He um, shares very nicely and openly his development. Yeah, as an investor. Yeah, and Seth Klarman. There are a lot of great yeah, uh, Klarman as well. Yeah, lines there. It's been uh, it's kind of interesting, Ray. That was certainly my baptism into investing, and I it just was so neat, and um, it made the world of uh, investing seem logical, and uh, that there was a some process to it. I did my MBA. Just, uh, it was an exec MBA, but it overlapped. Half of it was in '99, and half of it it went from '99 to 2001. At mm-hmm. Ivy, and uh, so half of it was in the dot com bubble, <laughs> and the yeah. finance profs were like desolate. You know, they they were just like they couldn't they couldn't understand uh, des- destitute. They were they were just they were just like despondent. Sorry, that's the word yeah. I was trying to find. Uh, yeah. They they couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, uh, couldn't grok the reality of it. And then like the next year, they were bullying you know because it was like the the market had crashed, and of course everybody else was sad because they had lost a lot of money, and they were like the, the world is rational again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chastened by fire. Yeah, right, the, right. And, and we've had those episodes extend again. Um, it really does seem that um, first, you know, the public markets in the U.S. have a very enviable record of really and quite um, efficiently distributing capital. Um, you know, nothing stays the same forever, and there's been more and more um, uh, influence from stimulus and from the central banking uh, agents of the world, not just in the U.S., um, that's sort of um, had the effect of manipulating prices. Um, and that leads to inefficiencies when you're interrupting price signals, especially right. the most important one. I just cost. want to point out that I think Mayoshi son probably thought he was wanting to be a central banker with that last fund. <laughs> yeah. I think he's just uh, mildly subvert. Well, not even mildly subversive. Just I think he's just led uh, in subversiveness in many ways. Uh, it's helped him in uh, early stage in some places, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that's really an investment strategy for the long run. Uh, anyway, the you know the the stimulus we've seen is just tremendous, and has lifted um, so many boats and has led a lot of money which used to um, find yield to chase more and more speculative deals. Hmm. So we really are seeing, you know, um, if lime and bird weren't enough, now you can invest in, you know, the, the round B for Usain Bolt's scooter company 
<laughs> I don't know what uh, the it first feels two like a bubble building. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. scooters, right? yeah. and like those bicycle graveyards that we saw all over China and some Pull up cities. Bikes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been misdirecting some capital with, uh, and I really felt these um, this pressure from central banks on interest rates. Again, that's a pretty important, <laughs> the most important market signal: the cost of money. So we're still seeing some effects of that again, and it's like a sort of distant mirror back to 20 uh, to 2000 and 1999, where these growth oriented names, whether they're growing in profits, but certainly growing revenue, um, have taken the lion's share of market value. I mean, uh, these are good companies, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, but the market capitalization of those three companies alone is over 5 trillion now. That's more than the GDP of Germany. And again, those are great companies, but at these valuations, um, I don't know if it's comparable to the productive economy of, a, of the German state. I don't know. So you know, does, uh, do you think those companies will fall in uh, over time? Like, well, or, remember, or can they can they keep the Tesla halo, as, as I like to call it now, and keep well, going forever? Nothing lasts forever. You know, we had the Nifty Fifty in 1972, um, and most of those companies, if you paid the price at that time, I mean, if you were buying at those very rich prices. Coca-Cola, IBM, uh, McDonald's, it would have taken you 12 years and over a 50% decline in each of those companies before you were able to just break even on the share price. Microsoft. I'm reading right now called Creative Destruction that talks about this and it Mm -hmm. talked about that exact group and, you know, that, you know, that that was hard for any individual player or an industry segment to maintain above average returns for more than a short period of relatively short period of time, a few decades. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, it's interesting. I mean, even Microsoft in 99, you know, had a lofty valuation and it was an 18 year desert. They had to cross a Valley before the share price broke through and it's done so in just fantastic fashion, but it was a long wait. Um, so the price you pay really matters, even if the growth, because one thing I think too, I'm very, um, while I, I question a lot of these valuations, Neil and Ray, I, I also listen to technologists because I think they're early and there's a bridge to cross this valley. But like in the 90s, one of the most now uh, disreputable things people talked about was eyeballs, eyeballs. You know, mm-hmm. these were clicks and eyeballs that were measuring the valuations of these companies. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, of course, the the driving motivation today for some of the large technology giants is the reach and, and trying to keep your attention, uh, attention, a different way of saying eyeballs for longer. Mm-hmm. So if Facebook can grow and, and maintain user engagement, attention, then the property becomes more valuable naturally. But um, this, this is a bit of a long way from the year 2000 and 99, 98 when that was talked about in a very serious fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I think sometimes just listening, keeping your observation and ears open to the wind can give you at least in some ways from the technologists I mentioned an advanced view of what's coming. I see that as I mentioned earlier with the gamification and just really can feel it now. Zoom and Microsoft Teams and WebEx are very um, poor (laughs) <laughs> it's the flat earth compared to the the uh, universes and the 
imagination that exists in a lot of gaming platforms now. And I know that that we'll cross over into that in terms of business engagement and other ways to use it. Uh, as you were saying, Ray, with health care and even diagnostics and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of game companies have an advantage there. What are the sources you look at to get in, insights around technology? <laughs> I oh. laugh, right, because it's so large. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know where to begin. I mean, I do read a lot of industry journals. I, I, um, well, you might start with how much you read in a day, right? You're reading, you're synthesizing a couple hundred pages worth of data a day? I try to clock, yeah, 300 to 400 pages, mm-hmm. um, roughly. Um with a day off in the week or a, a more leisurely day. <laughs> I had a wonderful professor in college and uh, he wrote me a note. He said, please read a lot of fiction. <laughs> and I just laughed. I don't have time for that. Uh, but uh, I realized his wisdom, of course, <laughs> later in life, if I'd only wake it up sooner, but I guess it happens when it happens. Um, and to see how that really helps me with making connections and, and um, also just exercising my imaginative muscle. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, so uh, uh, Ray, to answer your question, is not any specific source, but a lot of it I, I read the annual reports and the footnotes um, mm-hmm. from companies in their 10Ks. And uh, first through the public markets, I get a lens yep. uh, and through their partnerships and other things what to see what's going on. Yep. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the public markets are uh, quite top-heavy in terms of technology. I mean, we've not seen those um, big companies uh, represent such a large share of the stock market's value. Um, you know, 20 years ago, the S&P Energy Index was um, 23% or so of the index. Um, and now we see it at 3%. Um, we see... You know, um, Apple alone is worth more than the entire energy sector in the S&P. So it does seem that there's a, uh, some sort of reversion to the mean that's due to come um, and that these multiples can't expand forever. But I also want to recognize we never saw scale like this before. You know, if Google has 1.5 billion unique visitors or users, um, Instagram's gone over a billion. Wait, so I was reading about this. The Dutch East India company, the largest company ever by size, right? How many users, if you will, did they affect? How many people bought jeans the way I think about it? I think that's what they sold or or material for things, right? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, they ship products from across the world back to England and... And, and everywhere else and yeah you know, in the visual capitalist book uh, i bought they show them as being worth um the 30 20 30 largest companies of today what the dutch east india company yeah 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 so what did they trade tobacco spices furs cotton you know rough goods uh, yeah uh-huh. Uh-huh. finished goods back back to the territories they were trading the the rough products raw products from I just wonder if, you know, how much has been of scale before, like you're saying, Chris, like there have been a couple, but not yeah. many in size, right? Not many for, and certainly not oh, for I this see kind what of you're saying, Neil. Yeah, and as a percentage of uh, the total addressable market. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were probably pretty big, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it's but there uh, hasn't been that many Dutch in, Dutch in East India and Googles and Microsofts, right? I can agree. With no, that. But, you know when I was in business school and they talked about oh, the the Dolan family and the Comcast of the world and you know the cable companies, which were the with their large installed subscriber base, um, you know there's and utilities with 10 million users and it's oh my god <laughs> and now we're in the billions i mean again monetizing that varies by business model and, and by uh, user engagement but it's a pretty remarkable reach um that was unimaginable you know i think even at the outset of the internet um so some of that um, scale in terms of valuations may be warranted but it does seem quite excessive again it reminds me of the arguments in favor of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo being worth more than the state of California. And you might have done the mathematics correctly, <laughs> multiplying the available square footage by the most recent price or what you imagine it to be and trying to defend it. But it just isn't uh, logical to think the seventh largest economy in the world at the time was worth less than mm -hmm. one sterile <laughs> plot of ground, as beautiful as it was. And I think we're making that same. Works uh, until error. you can no longer find someone to pay the price. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so, and in the in this world too, where we favored um, so heavily one group, um, and it's also why you see. I'm sure you guys see this in venture. Everyone wants to be considered a tech company in some way, right? I think or. Well, I, sometimes I want them to be considered a tech company. <laughs> well, capital raising easier. Right? <laughs> yeah, kind of ensures at least some runway for them. I do look at companies to see that they'll at least have a chance to tech exit, even if they're not a, you know, even if they're a pure, really a med tech company, do they fit into a tech platform that could buy them? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not wrong. It's certainly understandable. It just, uh, is fascinating and there's a whole group of industries which have been widowed or orphaned whatever your choice by the by the stewards of capital and i think that you know like with warren buffett and like as uh, we saw with warren buffett in the in 99 and 2000 uh, and the value investment theme generally there'll be a kind of reappraisal of what's valuable so where does um, it go what what are your uh, top picks now and and how much capital are you holding on the sidelines, cash versus uh, deployed capital? Yeah, I probably have um, overall uh, close to 20% in cash. It's not that different than uh, what we sometimes see or mm -hmm. normally carry. But we have a lot more in um, treasuries mm -hmm. uh, and short-term bonds, as well as I, I think interest rates will continue here, at least in the near term, to fall. Mm-hmm. So we have a, um, a constructive view on uh, interest rates uh, falling and bond prices rising mm -hmm. from here. Um, we have a, um, uh, a view that the dollar will continue to weaken. And so we have a, uh, a bias toward uh, foreign markets in terms of equity, and the prices are much better uh, in terms of the value we're able to get in some of the foreign markets that it does include Europe, uh, but the growth there is very slow, but particularly emerging markets. Um, and in uh, the metals, miners, precious metals, 
which has run up a bit uh, as the dollar has been weaker. So those are uh, more defensive positions. Hmm. Um, and in so the dollar, the, the the lower the dollar goes, the more gold goes up. As an example, not not just be, I guess gold is rising at a faster rate than the dollar is. Yeah, the the strongest relationships um, are the deficits to the gold price, uh, and our budget deficits have really exploded higher here in the U.S. I think I was reading we spent uh, about 12.4% in the first bill and in initial stimulus of our GDP, 12.4% or so, um, on coronavirus stimulus. And the next closest economy was, I think, Great Britain in terms of its size, like 4% or so. <laughs> so we really, uh, really reacted. Uh, Unfortunately, the bigger. magnitude of the problem was much greater in the U.S. because of the lack of cohesive federal action. I agree. I agree. I guess that's one way to look at it. We had to pay the price yeah. very directly and immediately. Yeah. For that, Unnecessarily, uh, frankly. But yeah. 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 So we, we've seen that and there's another uh, stimulus bill coming. So, um, but you know, the dollar is the world's currency. Uh, it's the most widely held. Yeah. And there's a chance that the this, uh, I don't count the dollar out because it's so widely held and it's used in a lot of transactions. So there will be demand for it. Um, and there could be a counter trend rally, which is probably a little bit overdue. But really, I think um, many central banks and many other governments and economists of foreign lands are trying to repudiate their dependence on the dollar and are concerned because the Fed acts as the central bank for the U.S. But really, because of the dollar status, they're a central banker to the world. And the rest of the world has to take what we give them in terms of interest rate policy, like it or not, um, especially if they're dollar dependent or have a lot of dollar debts. So um, we see it affecting Turkey right now. Um, maybe not the most friendly government, but still. Um, they, they don't believe in central banks anyway. No, no, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what he said, right, famously a year and a half ago or something? Well, I, I don't wholeheartedly disagree. I think you need a a free market in money and the price of money. And we don't really get that um, when we keep overriding these price signals. And we keep getting these unintended consequences and a lot more boom and bust cycles than I think are due, um, exacerbating um, the cyclical tendencies that the normal business cycle already has. In other words, the, the central bankers say that they're you know, counteracting or they're counter-cyclical or they're trying to sustain growth, but I don't think that's real. I think that's an illusion. If you pierce the monetary veil, you'll see that the, underneath the real economy is still going through its vicissitudes and all they're doing is prolonging or exacerbating or amplifying the cycles for good or ill. So, um, but anyway, <laughs> it does look like coronavirus has put a wrench in the spokes. And um, while the stimulus has come, uh, it's ended. You know, we had uh, enhanced unemployment benefits here in the U.S. And uh, if you looked at the math on that, uh, U.S. unemployed citizens were able to claim another $600 every week in enhanced benefits. And the average check for unemployment is a little over $320 a week or so in the U.S. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so that raised the unemployment benefit from around $1,200 a month for most families or individuals to uh, almost 4,000. Yeah, right. 
it's a pretty substantial. That's why retail sales were pretty stubborn. Uh, in that, that's why Tesla stock went up too. I think so. Well, there are many factors. You know, things are multi. <laughs> Sorry, we 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 we're constantly perplexed by the. Uh, well, I'm a, yeah, I'm a. I don't get it either. I'm a. If I don't short sell, but if I did, I would short sell Tesla. Um, their, <laughs> right. their financials don't make yeah. any sense to me. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I was uh, listening to Charlie Munger, Buffett's business partner, one time, and he relayed a story. He said, I was talking to H.F. Amundsen, Harold Amundsen, who was a founder of Home Savings Bank here, a very successful savings and loan in the Southern California area, which was bought by Chase. But anyways, I was talking to Harold Amundsen one time, and he, he warned me. He said, never underestimate a man who overestimates himself. And I've never forgotten those words because every generation, a fellow like that comes along or a few of them. And sometimes they can accomplish great things. And a lot of times they can uh, <laughs> promote themselves into great things. And sometimes it just ends in uh, dust. But yeah. this is a pretty fascinating story that way because there really is a tremendous amount of accounting irregularity yeah. uh, and fraud. Um, certainly questionable sales, uh, a claim that they've become profitable when if you really look on a gap basis or even NEPA accounting basis, no, doesn't jive. So, um, but anyway, the, the share price is high. Um, we've seen a lot of things, you know, a tremendous amount of gambling speculation, 3.6 million or so new accounts. And this is, um, mid June numbers, um, in terms of retail and online brokerage. So Robinhood. Uh, yeah, yeah, I also wonder if Robinhood's pushing some of this too. The millennials, right? yeah. Yeah, well, they've made it, unfortunately. Um, Gamified. We're, yeah, we're in an environment where the regulation is very, very lax. Um, Jim Chanos, the famous short seller, says this is the golden age of fraud. So he talks about Tesla in that too and how amazing it is to see these companies run up with so many... Um, uh, flaws and problems and outright uh, irregularities. Wirecard was one he had shorted four years ago, and all of a sudden, <laughs> these things go gradually, then suddenly, they couldn't find $2 billion in cash. It's the most easy, <laughs> the thing that's the asset that's easiest to get a hold of was somehow missing. Uh, and of course, that was a very big fraud, but it doesn't seem that it was enough. And um, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, old Harvard economist, uh, wrote a lot about um, market crashes and euphoria. And he always cited one of the hallmarks of a market that's about to end or a euphoria that's about to end is the revelation of fraud. Um, and so we had, you know, Enron in 2000. Um, we've had Bernie Madoff in the 2007-8 era. And um, I guess Wirecard wasn't big enough to... Uh, redirect people's attention, but there are others in the wings because we've had a long um, era of lax uh, regulatory environment. I actually wonder whether Tesla does buy Volkswagen, right? Like, <clears throat> you know, they have they've got the the stock price to do it now uh, <laughs> to legitimize themselves, right? Because because suddenly they're legitimate overnight, right? Like literally, mm -hmm. and they can actually maybe use some of the things they built. This is that uh, Theranos uh, story I told you, right? Like, I think Theranos actually could have made a major turn um, if they just started acquiring. Yeah. 
Well, there's plenty of money available for even people like Elon Musk. I mean, I got a <laughs> friends and family. Solicitation. That's a very funny thing for you to say. There's plenty of money for even people like Elon Musk. It, it's a, it's really remarkable because of this, um, you know, low interest rate environment and ZERP policy. We've really seen just this plethora of, of course, money is an extension of ourselves. It's a tool that we humans have created and, and we give it uh, the impetus of our very lives. We want it to be safe. We want it to survive. We want that capital to grow as well. Like our I think offspring. interesting thing with Tesla is I used to be a customer. I used to be a pro, like a very positive, you know, net promoter of the company, mm -hmm. uh, even considered buying shares in it. And then I changed overnight for me because um, I started seeing cracks appear as a customer in mm -hmm. their customer support and the quality of the product in the waiting lines uh, at, at, at the service centers, which were much larger and yet had much, much, much larger backlogs of, of support and service. And just reading the support blogs and then, you know, sort of, it feels like it's, it's predicated on a quality that once was real and is no longer there. Yeah. And then there's all these financial regularities and um, promises of sales that just don't seem to be real and yet continue like, you know, Ponzi scheme is uh, continue to be built. Right, right. Yeah, the deliveries don't match up with the recognized sales, right, and there's right. just a lot of very glaring irregularities in a and a rotating cast of CFOs and and uh, officers. So yeah. it's a yeah, that's a clear, clearly troubled company. But you know, I'd look at others too and see something similar. Like, uh, and not to pick on China, we've got our own, but Alibaba is a very big one. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these things harken back to you know, uh, episodes in our history, again, a distant mirror, Ivar Kruger was the match king in the twenties, you know, um, matches were a wonderful new technology. <laughs> they were former, na formerly nationalized. And he took all of these national match companies private and made this big consortium. Um, he was a Swedish fellow, but he had the same charisma and he convinced all of wall street that his United match company was, profitable and uh, was growing. And even in the crash of 1929, he didn't suffer. Um, capital flowed into his firm because he was considered a safe haven. Um, and so, you know, but there was a lot of offshore dealing and hiding of liabilities. And uh, he um, met a sad end, committed suicide in 1932. And then the stock crashed. <laughs> I don't know how this tale will end, but I will say that United Match Company did make matches. There was some legitimate business purpose, but uh, overshadowed by uh, irregularities and fraud and, and dealing. And I think Tesla is in some ways uh, reminiscent of that. Tremendously yeah. charismatic leader, and he's able to raise capital beautifully and, uh, and many other things. His imagination is tremendous and strong, but whew. <laughs> this uh, idea of actually operating a business is uh, a little bit challenging for him. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm with you. I had a, a deposit on a Tesla and I couldn't get my deposit back. And my uh, someone here in my office got a new car delivered and just went online and ordered it <laughs> while I was still waiting for a deposit. I said, that's not right. <laughs> that I've been waiting in line and I can't get the car. Yep. And I've heard many people with that story yeah. as well. Yeah. So they could keep the record of uh, 
you know, the sale. Many demand. solar city deposit uh, holders have yet to see a single solar panel deployed, and they're, yeah. this is like years after a couple of years after they, uh, you know, bought into the, the here's the beautiful looking tiles that don't actually have a basis in reality. SpaceX yeah. seems to have fallen into some, you know, they've got a government willing to pay for those rockets, which is, you know, they might pull out of it. Um, but I think they're the good company out of, out of his portfolio. Yeah. yeah. The one that seems to be um, self-funding. But I was going to say, I got a, a circular. I got an offering, private and confidential, dear really? friend. Um, so it's not private and confidential. It was basically for a SPAC. I know, special purpose vehicle that was intended. That, that's actually one I want to talk about before we leave, by the way, the call today, SPACs. So yeah. that's perfect. This is, again, just kind of all this money floating around, especially in the venture space, mm. seeking a home. And the SPAC is to invest in the Series N, as in Nancy, the 13th letter of the alphabet, folks, uh, the Series N fundraising round for SpaceX. Really? And the the... Mm. The... One of my very intelligent investors that you've met, Chris, mm -hmm. um, actually wants to invest in this round. In the, the N round? Now, I'm not sure. The N I, round, yeah. There were a lot of chart crimes in this thing. <laughs> so I couldn't quite get through the presentation. Now, I should send you some of the pieces from the deck, Neil. You'll laugh. There's a total S addressable Send me the whole deck. I'd love to see it. There's a total addressable market of like a trillion it says, but they highlight this five billion dollar thing and make it larger on the the pie chart than the nine hundred billion <laughs> rest of the addressable market. It's very interesting the way the data is presented, and it just uh, kind of threw it in the trash pile. That hmm. that um, I'm being solicited in that way, just kind of in such a general way, because I know they're probably sending this to RIAs and family offices, but dear friend and it's not personal or confidential and it's round n and at the same time uh, elon musk is talking about an ipo for spacex a public offering and yet anyway it's just a, a very interesting world where nothing seems to align so tremendous amount of capital chasing some I, of the high profile deals you know, I, and this is kind of related to the startup section today. I, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the SPACs that are coming out. And, you know, I wonder, I wonder if more startups are going to start to raise money this way too, or more mature companies, right? Um, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to go for round C. Maybe it makes sense to try and go for a SPAC of some sort. Reminds me of Boomerang a little bit. Michael Luce's book, uh, he talked about, uh, I think it was in that one mixed them all up now but might have been the big short where he talks about you know selling to the next uh dumb investor they were talked about let's sell it to the and i think this is out of the book sell to the german retail market um, yeah and, yeah. The german and they were the last yeah they were the last ones to buy and they bought all those uh horrific uh mortgage-based securities that bought you know that merged all the the crap with the mm -hmm. uh, the very few good and they called it you know triple a or whatever mm-hmm yeah, there's a there's a ready market, and again, you know that those transactions added to U.S. GDP. <laughs> the spec, the spec transactions. No, I was saying the the uh, collateralized debt and loan obligations, collateralized mortgage obligations that uh, Ray was just referring to. Yeah. But I think oh, that's kind of weird. I wouldn't have. I guess I didn't know how GDP was counted. I wouldn't have figured that would have counted. Well, the, the commissions and the fees. Um, you know, when you roll up. Yeah, it's just strange. Poor assets into a fund, and you know it's 
five cents worth of assets, you sell it for a dollar. It's a, wow. a contraption designed to fall apart. Do, but, do you not think we're going to see more startups actually use SPACs correctly? Um, I guess correctly. I, I think it's a, um, it depends. There's still a lot of development, I think, and even uh, regulatory um, uh, attention that needs to be given to SPACs. I mean, some of them are um, really, uh, if you've ever read um, Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds, one of the lines that always sticks with me, and it was from the South Sea Bubble, and there were all these IPOs then. And uh, one of the, the prospectuses was for an endeavor to be of great benefit, but for no one to know what it is. And this issue was oversubscribed. It was a secret business. And a lot of SPACs are being created. <laughs> right? We're going to invest in something fabulous. Just give us the money now. Well, <laughs> I was really surprised Billy Bean from Moneyball was able to raise $3 billion to go buy some sports teams. But oh, like yeah. the European soccer, I was like, "Wait, a little bit I reminds think he's me probably of the coin, baseball, the coin bubble that uh, you know they were doing similar things. We have, we this is the next uh, Bitcoin, uh, but we can't tell you about it because it's uh, it's secret, and they got you know there was tons of fraud uh, in that, very yeah. closely held, and yeah, and even the SPAC I'm talking about that's supposed to invest in a Series N round for SpaceX, it says once you've given them the money, you can't get it back. It says that you know until SpaceX does something and. SpaceX hasn't had the round end yet, so once my money's in that vehicle, it's pretty much trapped. Orphaned. Yeah, orphaned. <laughs> right. So, so, Ray, you and I have a very good friend um, who actually bought in at round C. I'm, you know, I wonder if he's actually looking for liquidity. Seems like this is the ideal time for some of the end round folks to... Yeah, secondary sales. This. Yeah. I think I know who that is. Yeah, I'm sure you do. It's not going to be hard for us to figure it out. <laughs> so. um, he's a rocket scientist, so there you go. Still not giving it away. Right. Um, so, so like Ray, I'm kind of curious. Do you think that are do you think in the next 24 months we're going to be advising startups, we meaning you and I for sure, to say, hey, you know, look at us back, you know, go look at acquiring some other things in the space that can work with you have some cash flow, go this other way, because, you know, if you're okay at raising money, this may be a better path towards taking your potentially risky venture to some safeness. Like there, there may actually be some really good responsible ways to SPACs. And I wonder about that a bunch. I don't know enough about the structure to really offer a, a useful opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how regulated it will become or how widespread or, uh, if there was going to be requirements around accredited in investors within it or not, and um, I don't know how how that it's going to be regulated. Currently, just stock. So yeah, I don't know. And most of the people who seem to be investing are are private equity and family offices. Not yeah, qualified investors. Yeah. Yeah. So, so supposedly sophisticated, right? Supposedly sophisticated. That's exactly right. Wait, so so Chris, <laughs> do you do you think that? Uh, uh, I'll be giving that advice at some point in the next couple of years or not really? Or do you think this is just another? Um, um, it, I can't see it right now. But, um, you know, many businesses have started out and have, uh, I guess, let me back up. Right now, it's kind of the Wild West with SPACs. Um, they're 
um, regular, you know, regulatory light. They um, are catering to so-called sophisticated investors, so they're naturally under uh, the regulators' uh, highest radar. Um, and again, they're investing in or plan to invest in enterprises in the future. There's just a lot of uh, gray area, so there are a lot of abuses because there's a lot of money to be made and to be uh, moved around. Um, but that's not to say like timeshare or some other businesses, it can't be legitimized <laughs> or, or more focused uh, to um, its possible best use um, in the future. And there are SPACs, of course, that are going to raise money for great causes and great companies. Um, but yeah, right now it's... Um, if Bill Ackman's in the business, it must be good. <laughs> Good for Bill Ackman, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Charitable toward himself. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's great. I, I know I wouldn't invest in one um, based on what I little I know of them. I like knowing what I'm investing in and when it gets, you know, uh, that I have a conversion rate at some point uh, or what my economic rates are. Yeah. yeah, I actually heard a CEO recently suggest to me that maybe it made sense to, to do one because he had a a legitimate business um, that's venture backed. It's it's passed a, around B right now, and he said, you know, it might make sense for me to just go acquire a couple of other businesses, merge them together. I might have a really nice little business. And it seems like money is flying a little too easily to the space. It may be easier than going for my next round. Hmm. And he's building a legitimate business in every way. No, yeah. right. It should be venture backed, but well, you know, I kind of wonder. Like he's be, like, yeah, there's going to be good actors who take advantage in a good wave of vehicles there's also going to be bad actors who use the light regulatory scrutiny and the lack of requirements and follow through and you know time frame requirements they'll take advantage of that and then there'll be a recoil and then you know then be either people pull out of it or there'll be regulation mm -hmm. i guess mm -hmm. but yeah so neil sorry i can't answer it's just early in the game Oh, it's okay. I mean, most of the stuff I ask you, I don't think you can really answer. You just give me your framework anyway. Yeah. Or, or we bet wrong, right? I mean, how many times have I asked you about the economy? <laughs> how analogous is it to the like the ICOs craze that was a few years ago? The, the initial coin offering. Oh gosh, that was uh, I think even more wild west. Uh, yeah. Than, uh, I mean, I know that, that was worse, but I don't know how much worse. So. Yeah. Yeah. There've been a few. Um, I thought Beanie Babies were crazy enough, but the yeah. ICOs really uh, was a huge wealth transfer. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know, SPACs haven't quite uh, got that momentum yet. But that Beanie Babies had? Like Beanie Babies. No, the one I kind of compared it to, I wondered, was... Uh, um, and I'm going to completely butcher the scheme because I don't study these things. Uh, what was it? How they allowed doctors to buy into these partnerships to be able to write off, um, take the write off early that this, this period in tax loophole existed for four or five years um, where, where you could buy and, and take the write off much, much earlier than before. Right. Do, do you remember what, do you know what I'm talking about, Chris? I don't know. But of course, there's loopholes in everything, right? And they exist for a short amount of time um, at moments that allowed for ICOs or maybe for SPACs, you know, 
Is it just, is it going to be something where a few do really well and then it just closes because there's a bunch of bad actors too? Yeah. yeah that, that's what I'm wondering in my mind, right? Yeah. 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 Well, let's watch SoftBank and see. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, they, if SoftBank gets close to it, then. Huh? If SoftBank does it, then I don't believe in it, right? Almost like. Right. Right. I'm right. more suspect instantly. Well, they've been yeah. a driver of a lot of the over the frothy valuations and sort of like there's always another chair available for the, the next round investor. You know, that these, uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting well, guess, you mention them. Yeah. Well, I did almost as a, that's kind of my barometer for how gullible, uh, investors are, you know, what's the appetite, uh, in terms of what people want to believe rather than what's really true. I mean, we work was a capital destroying enterprise. I don't care what. Yep. Could you didn't just go from forty four billion in valuation to zero overnight. No. It was zero for a long time. Yep. Or less than zero. Um so you know And I think bigger, Chris. That's what he said to him, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. Conversations. Adam Newman, think bigger. Well, Zoom, they did invested in Zoom Pizza. Uh they invested in WeWork, they invested in the 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 Penelope. The, the ultimate round of, of Uber. Um, yeah. You can go on and on and on. Uh, so many yeah. bad investments. Right, right. Or seemingly and, and, bad investments. So maybe some good ones too. But Well, Alibaba, right, was a big uh, win for Mayoshi Son. And so Mayoshi uh, that was really. was one of the few, right? Yeah, what, exactly. One of the few. Uh, Yahoo Japan and uh, Baba. Sprint. Sprint. Well, Sprint's not really been a winner for him. Um, oh, any, I would figure the cash flow was okay, but I don't really know how he's running the company, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, it's tremendous what also, looking at it from another lens, what uh, a couple of big winners will do for you. It can cover a lot of uh, poor poor choices or or, uh, or or losers. So, You know, I remember seeing a lot of uh, um, AngelList syndicate holders and um, – not to point at Angelist or even just people who are starting micro VC funds who made an early investment in Uber, who made an early investment in something else that went massive. And suddenly they were signal that they understood how to get into big deals when I don't necessarily think that's always true. Mm -hmm. right? Well, and the, again, and again, it's difficult. Yeah. And, and again, you know, that, that, that model of just um, top line growth, top line growth and figuring out the business model later has, uh, been, I guess, successful enough, in, but really in isolated cases, but those big ones that it's been copied, you know. Again, you see DoorDash and Postmates and um, many, HubSpot, and a lot of these companies have tried to do it. Salesforce still. Um, just a lot of SaaS companies are uh, buying that growth. Right, right. And the those business models, though, are more proven in, in some of those cases. So you can... Like and, Salesforce. Yeah. Yeah. You can see, hopefully, <laughs> some trajectory toward a profitable enterprise. Um, Netflix, you know, uh, you can see that they can, um, with the economies they've achieved and just their subscriber base, it's uh, pretty big. I mean, you know, Disney Plus is talking about 10 million subscribers and uh, Netflix is a 90 or so um, active users. So if... Um, you know, you debut something on Netflix, it's uh, much likelier to 
easily be a hit. You know, they can control a lot of the economics of that uh, result, even with modest uh, content. Right. I, although, isn't Netflix kind of over, like the minute there's a, a major market glitch that's not forcing people to stay at home, doesn't Netflix probably have an issue? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. <clears throat> I think theaters have an issue on the other two. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if we'll be able to go to one anytime because they'll be bankrupt by the time we're ready to go. Right. So well, people want to go to theaters still in the future after several years of never not going. Right. Uh, yeah, I, well, a lot I of people are so. upgrading their AV systems. So And they, here they again, buy. the gaming platforms can be a, um, a wonderful remedy to that theater experience. You can be in a theater in a metaverse in your own Right, design of your own design. Yeah. Did you see Mulan's going to be released for thirty bucks on Disney Plus? I that thought that was actually. Me. I I talked to people about that. There's no way I would pay incremental amount. I'm I actually haven't subscribed to Disney Plus yet. I've debated it, but I've got like three or four others, and mm-hmm. that certainly doesn't make me want to subscribe. It's like I don't get that as part of the the onboarding. Oh, interesting. I just yeah. thought about it as that's what it cost me to go to the movies if I if my wife wants to see it. It, it makes sense. I mean, I, I don't really get ten thirty bucks for fine. Netflix to spend a significant percentage of its revenue on content development at some point the expansion stops and it becomes a you know is it still sustainable to develop all that content i've always wondered that without having some kind of incremental payment model yeah. i you know i'm gonna seem like the millennial here even though i'm not um not when i see tiktok huh. um because as i watch tiktok videos uh 15 minutes a day well they're competing for average, your attention Sure. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm able to go through episodes quicker. And on the things I care about that I learned, I spend a lot more time reading. So I can go through a lot more content a lot quicker. Um, from, you know, and I like the entertainment of being able to see a bunch of parkour videos, um, which is really kind of fun to me because hmm. it's like, you know, kind of like watching a movie for a minute um, with an action sequence. Hmm. Um, but, you know, you, you, learning about all sorts of different things. Um, from places to travel to, you know, history about things. When I get interested, suddenly I'm, I'm reading for an hour and a half. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I can see how Netflix runs into a problem when I see that as an alternative. More and more of their content that we're consuming, my wife and I, is, is voiceover dubbed from foreign language. Hmm. Because it's just, there's just not as enough, much uh, English native lang- uh, yes. content being available. Mm-hmm. Money Heist being my example on Netflix. Sure, or Babylon Berlin being another great one recently. Um, Dark mm-hmm. is another one. Like those three are all exemplary quality, uh, but Spanish and Money Heist, Dark, German, mm-hmm. I think Babylon Berlin, German as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I kind of grew up thinking about content that way. Being Indian, we'd see these Bollywood films mm-hmm. occasionally, right? And like, so mm-hmm. just reading they didn't have dub over it was just reading the subtitles for me eventually those run out too you know like uh, they're on that wave now and eventually they run out of those too right yeah no it, it's it's certainly interesting so. and all their other sources have created their own walled gardens like disney like hulu like hbo yeah. like so the, all the ones they used to be using it netflix as their partners apple tv now as well and others mm-hmm. well even there you know like um uh, I, I think uh and 
I've read this, of course, and it makes me really wonder that the content doesn't even have to be of high quality. Like Netflix released Tiger King, I guess, and that became a oh, yeah. cultural yeah. phenomenon, right? I watched half an episode of that. It was like, right. that's, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say about TikTok, right? The quality of the episodes isn't good, right? These are people just kind of shooting selfie videos on average, uh-huh. right? And then suddenly cutting to the pictures of whatever, right? Um so I was able to take a, a tour of some great restaurants in Santorini um, and something caught my eye and I looked it up, right? Like this isn't stuff I would normally think about. The content wasn't phenomenal quality, but that was really entertaining to me. Oh, okay. That looks like something my wife, I'm, I'm vegetarian. My wife is not. That looks like something my wife liked, liked to eat. Let, let me look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I was never looking up a Mediterranean uh, restaurant before. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. I, I that that's why I think that the Netflix can't keep forever. Certainly, I think they can as long as the baby boomers continue to thrive. Well, but I mean, yeah. too, my point was if if that same show Tiger King had been released on Showtime or I don't know even Disney Plus, I don't think it would have had that same sort of impact and been as ubiquitous as it became. I don't, you know, I never watched it, but it sounded like a train wreck, and people yeah. watch train wrecks, so I don't yeah. know. Quibi has certainly struggled. That. I think Quibi's burned through half their capital, and they have yet to find product market fit. Who uh, has? Sorry, Quibi. 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 Burger and Whit, uh, Whitman is the CEO. Uh, mm-hmm. and oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, so they're not, not they're not doing well with this short form. Mm-hmm. Supposedly higher quality to date. You yeah. don't even hear. There's not even any press about them anymore, other than yeah. them running out of money. <laughs> well, uh, and Netflix burns through a, quite a bit, uh, but you know, again, it uh, maybe it's different. I'm always asking myself from the DoorDash and the Uber and Lyft models of just buying the revenue, but uh, it does seem that they're having success with the network effects for sure. Chris, I think this is a good chance for us to put a pin in it. Yeah. So. Um, if I hope we, we hope you like this episode of market meditations with Ray Musica and Ray, did I say your last name wrong? I think I've said it a little wrong, bit. Yeah. Musica is how I say it. Musica. Musica. But, but Dr. Musica. Ray is just fine too. So yeah, that was fascinating. I really loved the insights from Chris in the last half too. It was great. Oh, thanks Ray. I appreciate your input too. Hey, if you liked our episode today, please go ahead and visit your local podcast host and give us a five-star rating. We really would appreciate it. We'd love to bring you more guests. And uh, if you have any requests or suggestions, also feel free to leave that in the comments where you rate us and we will talk to you soon. Until then, be well and be safe.